A sumptuous reception is well underway in Stockholm's three-crowned castle in the Kingdom of Sweden. It is the evening of the 4th of November, 1520, and a hundred or so of the Swedish and Danish nobility are gathered to celebrate the royal victor. Laughter and whispers intermingle as yet another toast is declared in the name of the newly proclaimed Sovereign of Sweden, Christian II. In addition to this new kingdom, King Christian is also king and ruler of Norway and Denmark. The latter two kingdoms came to him through his father, but Sweden is his by way of his own bloody battle and conquest. King Christian raises his goblet to answer the declarations of loyalty, but those around him observe the king's cold, hard gaze, which seems to be directed at events in the future. And the future would come four days later, as the new king set out on a deadly path which would lead to the streets of Stockholm covered in the red blood of 82 Swedish nobles executed on the orders of their new king. This in turn would lead to destruction and the downfall of many. Hello, my name is Eva. And welcome to part one of the Stockholm bloodbath of 1520, an event which shaped the relationship between Denmark, Norway, and Sweden for centuries. The Stockholm bloodbath had its roots in medieval Nordic history in general and the complex and interwoven relationship between Sweden, Norway, and Denmark in particular. And as we are wont to do on this podcast, we shall examine the particular social, geographical, and historical circumstances which lay at the roots of these events, which played out on the 8th and 9th of November, 1520. In order to examine these events properly, we shall start 145 years earlier in October of 1375. In that year, the Danish king, Valdemar IV, died without leaving a son who might be raised to the throne. Valdemar, with the sobriquet of Etterday, meaning yet another day, as in yet another glorious day, had during his lifetime reunited a very fractured Danish kingdom after much of the arable land of Denmark had been practically pawned away to Germany during those vicious years known as the Kingless Period, which saw Danish earls fight each other to the absolute death in a battle for the Danish crown. Valdemar had eventually prevailed he had been proclaimed king, he had produced an heir. But sadly, he had also lived to see that heir die before his time. Valdemar's eldest child, 
a daughter by the name of Ingeborg, had predeceased him by five years, but she had left a son, Albrecht, whose father was the Count of Mecklenburg of Germany, part of the Holy Roman Empire. Years before his death, Valdemar had, more or less, promised the crown to the young Albrecht of Mecklenburg. The House of Mecklenburg held great land and maritime interests in the Baltic Sea, and these possessions would certainly enrich the Danish kingdom should Albrecht become king. However, the powerful Hanseatic League, which was a medieval confederation of northern German and Baltic merchant cities, they would almost certainly resist any sovereign becoming that powerful in their own sphere of influence. And the Hanseatic League had actually been promised a say in the proclamation of a new king of Denmark. For kinship in Denmark, though on paper hereditary, was in fact a proclaimed and sometimes even an elected position. So, for the Danish nobility gathered at the Council of State in October 1375, choosing Albrecht of Mecklenburg as Valdemar IV's successor carried with it a very real threat of unrest. So, instead of Albrecht, son of Valdemar's eldest daughter, Danish eyes turned instead to the dead king's youngest daughter by the name of Magrede, Margaret in English. Magrede had, at a very young age, been married off to Håkon, king of Norway. He was also the contested king of Sweden. For Håkon had been declared king of the Swedes, but then lost the Swedish crown in 1364, to none other than the House of Mecklenburg, who had placed one of their own on the Swedish throne. Already here, you might begin to see the extreme interwovenness of the political dynasties which ruled the North. So, just to reiterate, in 1375, Norway is ruled by the Queen Consort Magrede, daughter of the King of Denmark, and she is married to King Håkon of Norway, who is also the deposed King of Sweden, which is now ruled by the German House of Mecklenburg through their marriages into Swedish nobility. And now, in October of 1375, the House of Mecklenburg seek to raise Albrecht of Mecklenburg to the throne of Denmark, making his claim through the fact that he is the eldest grandchild of the now-deceased Valdemar IV. So, I hope you're with me still. Anyway, as I have explored in other medieval episodes, the ability of the medieval ambitious person to place themselves at the right place at the right time and avail themselves of the key to the treasury 
was paramount to securing power in those uncertain days which inevitably followed the king's passing. And so it was in this instance too, for in 1375, the House of Mecklenburg proved themselves irresolute in securing the crown of Denmark, while Magrede, well, she made sure to be in Denmark at the time of her father's passing, and she moved very quickly to curry favor among her father's erstwhile allies, handing out very generous gifts to them from the treasury. Now, strictly speaking, she, as queen consort of Norway, had absolutely no business and no legal right to manage the treasury of the Danish kingdom. But such was the renown of her father's name that the title Veldemar's daughter afforded her freedoms none sought to question. According to the surviving minutes taken at the Council of State held in Denmark in 1376, Magrede, more or less on her own, managed to persuade the Danish nobility, and not least the clergy, to back her bid to make her then five-year-old son, Olaf, king of Denmark. This plan drew huge support from Norway too, and eventually also from the Hanseatic League, which agreed to Olaf becoming king under promise of large concessions, of course, which included the lease of important port towns in southern Sweden, which unsurprisingly drew the ire of the Swedes themselves. So, May of 1376, Olaf is recognized as King of Denmark, with his mother, Magrede, and his father, Håkon, King of Norway, acting as regents until such time as Olaf comes of age. This arrangement suited almost all of the powers to be, though in reality, Håkon concentrated on his affairs in Norway and his troubles in Sweden, which made Magrede the de facto ruler of Denmark. And she ruled, according to contemporary letters written by the clergy of the time, effectively, wisely, using guile and clever tactics. Indeed, Magrede is one of the most celebrated of medieval Danish rulers, and certainly one of the most renowned of Nordic female queens. By 1380, Magrede had set in motion the reconstruction of castles and churches, and made travelling safe, or at least a lot safer, across the Kingdom of Denmark something which had been fraught with peril since the kingless period. She improved relations with the Hanseatic League and bolstered trade with the northern German cities, which made her popular with merchants and nobles alike. According to letters from Magrede herself to counterparts in Europe, 
Magreda's ultimate goal was to rule all the Nordic countries with Denmark as the central state. She saw it as her God-given right to unite and preside over the lands across which her ancestors had so freely travelled. She had to do this, of course, by being a regent in place of her son, but there is overwhelming evidence that she judged, ruled, minted coins, and decided in her own right. In the late summer of 1380, Magaida's husband, King Håkon of Norway, died, and he left his kingdom to his now 10-year-old son, who, in addition to being king of Denmark, could now be hailed king of Norway. And it was quite the landmass he inherited from his father, for the kingdom of Norway included Greenland, Iceland, the Orkney and Shetland Islands, as well as the Faroe Isles. While relations between Norway and Denmark were generally good, good dish, or as a chronicler wrote, as brothers forever fighting and forever making up, Denmark's relation to Sweden was of a far more prickly nature. The enmity went back centuries. During the Viking Age, Swedish and Danish jarls setting out on Viking raids had contrasting ideas about the right destination for a raid, whether it be westwards towards England or southwards and eastwards towards Constantinople and the land of the Rus, respectively. Furthermore, Finland was at that time under the Swedish crown, and Finland gave the Swedes a land-based and scarcely populated path to the land of the Rus. Denmark had invaded southern Sweden numerous times, had conspired to kill their kings numerous times, and had given away and even pawned away conquered Swedish land to foreigners or anyone willing to lend the Danish crown a coin. All of this, of course, without consulting the Swedes. However, during the 1380s, this cold relationship between Denmark and Sweden seemed to thaw, not least because the autocratic rule of the House of Mecklenburg in Sweden had antagonized large swathes of the Swedish nobility, who saw their most prized castles given as gifts to the German barons who latched on to the coattails of the ruling house. Thoughts of removing the current king of Sweden now festered in the minds of the Swedish nobility, and their eyes now turned to Magreda's son, Olaf, and his impressive pedigree. For not only was Olaf a descendant of Sven Forkbeard, son of the Nordic famed Viking king Harald Bluetooth, Olaf was also by blood a very distant descendant of the Swedish royal house of Folkungane, 
a near mythic dynasty, which in itself put him points above others. From hopes to whispers to actual dangerous talk, and then real treason against the Swedish king, plans were set in motion to crown Olaf king of Sweden. Back in Denmark, Magrede silently but persistently encouraged all of this through her correspondence with her informers who walked the shadowy holes of the Swedish castles. She promised the Swedes peace and steel were they to rebel against the Mecklenburg king. The ship carrying the most important Swedish earls set off for Denmark in the summer of 1387 to negotiate a hopefully peaceful resolution to the Swedish crises, which they hoped would end with the crown of Sweden placed on the now 17-year-old Olaf's head. But before this could ever happen, catastrophe, shock, confusion and dread engulfed the court of Denmark and Sweden as well. Next time, some survive while others plot, and a new faction appears. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to Restless Times in History. Until next time, I have been Eva, and thanks so much for listening.